Hey, listeners, before we start today's show, I want to do something that I haven't done very much in the past, and that is uh, plug my own coaching services. Uh, while X3 doesn't have any currently open spots for full coaching, uh, I have been having a lot of fun and some success with uh, a consulting-based coaching model. So this would be appropriate for someone who is self-coached and uh, intends to stay that way, likes to write their own plans and kind of follow their own tune, but wants a little bit of advice on either the physiology, psychology, technology elements of the sport. So if uh, you're one of those people and you want a little bit of help with either running or cycling or triathlon, then uh, shoot me a note. I'm at michael at x3training.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us today for his return appearance, his second time around, is uh, podcaster and physiotherapist Brody Sharp of the Run Smarter podcast. Uh, Brody joined us a couple of months ago, or no, probably longer than that, but I'm stuck in a time warp, so you'll have to forgive me. Um, (laughs) The whole world is stuck in a time warp right now. (laughs) Sometime before this time, Brody was on the Endurance Innovation (laughs) podcast, and uh, he did a really great um, uh, address of common running injuries, and this is one of our most commented on episodes. And today, Brody's back to talk about something that um, he feels, and I happen to agree with him, is very much undercovered in uh, in endurance sport, and that is pain science. Uh, that is how to think about uh, what we receive as pain signals, what they mean, what to do about them, and it's um, it's a part of daily life for most people and endurance athletes, um, and uh, something that, as I said, does not. I think, get enough attention. So Brody, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, coming back on Endurance Innovation. Michael and Andrew, it's always a pleasure coming on. I always love getting together. And um, you guys uh, came on my podcast to talk about the heat transfer, which was a lot of fun. And so, yeah, always happy to collaborate as a group and see what we come up with today. Nice. Uh, so Brody, what made you interested in pain science? Because as I said in my intro, it is uh, sort of a niche area of study in our in our world. Yeah. And I guess my experience was because I studied physiotherapy at uni, which um, did briefly touch on pain science. It was probably one lecture and it was towards the end as we were graduating and our mind was full of pain. The understanding of pain like in the physical sense and what the nerves do to conduct um, send signals to the brain, et cetera, we, we know that component when we graduate but we had this one quick lecture around pain science and how other influences um, or other environmental factors can influence pain. But it was so brief and it's like, oh, and potentially you can read this book, which was called Explain Pain. And uh, no one really got it. The book costs like $80 or something. And it wasn't until maybe a year or two into my physio career that I actually bought the book and started paying attention to it and 
not only realize it's a huge game changer with our current understanding of pain, but it also made sense in what I was seeing in clinics with people with chronic low back pain. It was making a lot of sense with injuries that I've dealt with in the past. And it was a topic that no one really talked about and none of my physios really got the concept. They didn't really factor it into their management plans and I think, and it was just really hard to communicate to clients as well. And I delved into the book, read the book, read a couple of other books, read a couple of other studies and interviewed uh, a few researchers on the topic as well. And I've, it's just been like kind of a special interest or a fascination of mine with no real formal in-depth research that I have done. It's just been a, an interest. And like I said, on my podcast, raising the awareness, I actually did a pain science series of like three or four episodes where I break down a lot of these concepts and introduce a few um, different ways of thinking about pain, which people have responded to. Some people are quite hesitant to understand it or have it applied uh-huh. to them, which we'll delve into in a second. But I guess that's my journey with around the pain science and just fell into it as a, an interest of mine. I find that so interesting and surprising that during the physiotherapy course, it was not a bigger part of what you talked about. Um, because pain is the reason that people seek treatment. Um, hmm. if you have an injury and you're not hurting from it, I would say most people would never go in. Um, like if you say you had a broken leg, but you couldn't feel it, you'd notice, Oh, well, my leg looks a little funny right now. Um, but then if it's not hurting, you wouldn't go in for treatment. So yeah, it's fascinating to me that that was not a bigger part of the curriculum. And I think it's one reason why they don't well, they, they probably delve into it a little bit more in detail now because it's actually quite recent. It's probably the last 10 to 15 years that this research has come out and it does show once the evidence out there, it takes about 20 years for it to start rippling mm-hmm. into common practice. It takes that long. So it is quite new um, in the understanding. But when you do practice and you do work on treatment techniques and you do work on management plans, people get better. Like people do reduce in pain and they come in pain, like with pain and you do things to help and they're, they're walking out in less pain or pain-free or a strategy to help with their pain. And so from my basic understanding or the, the knowledge I learned at uni, there's enough to learn where you can get some good treatment outcomes, especially for acute pain. But there's the really tricky side of understanding chronic pain. If someone has had low back pain for 10, 15 years and you just can't get them better and you don't know why with your traditional methods, um, that's when your real understanding of pain, pain science, chronic pain needs to come into play. That's a, that's a, a really interesting distinction between the between acute and chronic, but I want to shelve that for now and uh, and paint a little bit of a picture that, that you did so well in your podcast series that I listened to uh, quite recently, Brody. It made me think about pain in a, in a completely different way. And you used um, the, the explanation for what pain is as, and I'm paraphrasing here, as your brain perceiving a threat. Um, and so uh, as, as you, listeners, you can appreciate that threat perception is colored by a great number of things beyond perhaps the, the physical thing that is happening to your body. So what I, I think that that's a great place to start. And that's actually where you started in your series, Brody. So why don't we, why don't we begin there? How do you, how do things other than 
the physical, mechanical action that is happening to generate the pain signal? Um, how do all of these other things potentially um, influence how we perceive pain? Sure. So the first thing that people need to understand is that pain is generated from the brain and that's the only way it's it's generated if you don't have a brain you don't have pain and (laughs) we think of when you cut your finger we think that the pain comes from the finger or the nerves um, send those pain signals to the brain and then the brain processes it and then as a result um, sends out pain signals to the rest of the body the input from the nerves can be one factor but Mm -hmm. Because everything is being processed in the brain, the brain needs to evaluate how much danger there is because the brain does an amazing job of bringing on all these factors, all these influences to determine, okay, how much, how, how relevant is this? How much danger are we in? How much? And then once the process is all those little bits of information will then produce some sort of output uh, that may be pain, may not be pain in order to deal with that situation. So it's trying to protect us as best we can. And based evolutionary speaking, if you are, um, say, if you're injured, if you say get a broken bone, um, that's quite serious because it could lead to an infection. It could lead to, um, if it's not healed properly, it could lead to a whole bunch of complications. So yes, let's send pain to that area. However, if you are running from a tiger and you break a bone, the, the priority is a lot less. You need to get away from that tiger. So then the, the the way the brain will process that is, look, the broken bone might not be that relevant right now. Let's get away from this um, danger in front of us and then we'll deal with that later. And you have, you know, everyone knows these accounts of, say, if you're in battle, in war, or if there's high adrenaline like burning fire or um, these sort of dangers that the, we're in, People can be stabbed, be shot, like be amputated and not feel a thing until that um, that danger is dealt with. And it makes total sense because it's just the brain taking on all these bits of information. And if we look at, say, a runner or an athlete who does, um, say, rolls an ankle, the brain needs to compute and factor in several things. Yes, we, we look at, okay, we rolled our ankle how bad is it? Um, but we also think about what emotions are we attributing to it? What past experiences do we have around a rolled ankle? Did we just get over it in a couple of days or did our last rolled ankle take several weeks with x-rays and specialist appointments that cost a lot of money and a lot of fear provoking language? Did I have a family member or a friend who also rolled their ankle and was never able to run again? these thoughts that we put in our mind is just another bit of information that the brain uses to process this threat and process this injury. And we'll have those, um, uh, the, will equate to the amount of pain that's elicited as an output. And so if we can think of someone who rolls an ankle and they haven't had any previous experience or knowledge about a rolled ankle, Theoretically, they would experience pain less compared to someone who's done the same level of damage, rolled an ankle, but they have had trauma in the past with rolled ankles. They have had a, um, they haven't been able to play team sports for a long time because of rolled ankles, or they've had a friend who's had to give up playing basketball because of a rolled ankle. They would experience pain less, uh, pain more because the brain perceives it as more of a threat based on the experiences and past experiences. 
So there's a lot to, to factor in when it comes to pain, how pain is processed, what the severity of pain is. Um, but just know that it all originates from the brain processing all the bits of information and then will determine what the level of damage is or what the level of danger is and produce that output. Your example of the rolled ankle actually really speaks to me because it's something that I do all the time. Um, I've got, I'm told I have a super lax, oh man, you're the physio in the room. Um, the the muscles that uh, that e- that evert the uh, the foot um, at the in the bottom of the you know at the lower part of the leg. Anyway, so they're they're super lax and the tendons are too. So I roll my ankles all the time. But as a result, but I've never actually had an injury where I've rolled it and I've been off for more than a day or two. So in my mind, a rolled ankle is no big deal. So when I roll an ankle, yeah, I, I feel the pain, but it almost, it goes away very quickly. And I've, and people have seen me roll my ankles and they're like, Oh my God, are you okay? Like, yeah, it's, you know, it stings a little bit, but I'm going to keep running. Um, and it's, I was just coming down the stairs to start this recording and, one of my children left a boot on the on the stairs to the basement and it was dark and I wasn't paying attention. So I rolled my ankle as I stepped on this boot. I'm like, oh, you, you know, and I swore. And then I kept going down the stairs. And now I'm, I'm talking to you guys and I can't even feel my ankle because this is something that happens to me all the time. So the point I'm trying to make is it, it sounds like this cuts both ways, that if you've had a very powerful negative association with, uh, you know, a certain kind of pain or a certain kind of injury, then, you know, you would have one sort of, programming and then if you kind of had if you're like me with rolled ankles and rolled ankles are no big deal now i'm gonna i'm totally gonna go out for a run tomorrow and like really sprain my ankle and like do some damage now because that's how karma works but uh if you're like me uh and you roll your ankles all the time then you know it's 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 a not no big deal kind of injury and there's not a lot of pain associated with me Exactly. And I know in my podcast, I shared a YouTube clip, which uh, had Lorimer Mosley, who's a pain science expert and researcher, talk about a similar scenario where just say you're, you're jogging on a trail in the outback bush um, and you step on a twig and all of a sudden you're just like your brain um, send, well, your nerves send this message to the brain being like, okay, we've just stepped or, um, scratched our leg on something. What do we know? As a kid, we used to scrape our legs on twigs all the time. It's totally fine. It's just a a little cut. You'll be fine. But later discovers that it is a snake bite and ends, ends this runner in hospital. And then they've learned from that experience. They've got over it, but it was a very traumatic, very, um, severe, dangerous um situation some time passed years passed go back on the trails and start running again and notice that same sensation scrape on their their leg screaming in pain and because that those same messages are sent straight to the brain and being like there was a scratch on our leg what how can we process this the brain says straight away last time this happened you almost died Let's make this as painful as we can to get away from this experience. So you're in pain, you're screaming and you have a look and you've just scratched your leg on a a twig. And it's (laughs) the same that that example is just a perfect example of how pain does display, how the brain will evaluate certain things and how something that's quite dangerous might not be perceived in the moment because of your emotions, because of your past experiences, whereas something quite innocent can be severe when it comes to pain because of your past experiences and your emotions and in this 
book explain pain, they also talk about, say, a paper cut or a bee sting on a finger will be more painful, be a more painful experience if someone is a um, professional violinist because it is their livelihood, it Hmm. is their career, it means more to them compared to that same bee sting that's for a soccer player who doesn't need it at all to um, successfully thrive in their career and um, doesn't really factor in their income, doesn't influence their income at all. And, yeah, it's two exact same experiences, like the same damage to the body, yet experienced differently because the brain is processing it differently. Would it then be possible to unlearn pain? So if you have good associations with pain, um, which I'm trying to think of how that would be possible, but if you were to uh, provide a positive experience uh, that was associated with pain, would your body then reduce the amount of impact or how your, your brain would perceive it? Yeah, or, or at least education around what is actually happening with pain. And we do this with chronic pain. We make people understand that um, pain can be okay. It doesn't necessarily mean danger. Um, so education and appreciation of the senses and recognizing what it is, having a bit more mindfulness around what you are experiencing. But um, definitely the language that we use can be quite positive when it comes to a therapist talking to an injured athlete. Um, we're subtly doing this if you are wise of this topic. We're making sure that if someone comes in with knee pain, we're not using threatening language. We're just saying that the knee is overloaded and we just need to settle down this irritation and then build you back up in a safe manner that the knee can tolerate. We're not saying there's that your kneecap is degenerated and needs a significant amount of rehab. Otherwise, you're going to end up with um, significant wear and tear and needing an, uh, knee surgery. And we're not making sure that like even just little language, even just calling it degeneration instead of overload can um, have significant and profound effects on how the experience is for the individual. And so, yes, we can have a better relationship with pain. We can understand it more um, and have that influence be an experience be a bit more positive, but we can also make it neutral. But a lot of people commonly um, have this irrelevant negative association because some health professionals or some surgeons or friends, family, coaches, they tend to use this really negative language because it does create a lot of buy-in. Like it creates a lot of urgency. It creates a lot of adherence to your exercises if you do make it more serious than it sounds. But Mm. it also means that, yeah, the pain will be associated and that brain will start creating these um, doomed scenarios in your mind. So one similar question I have with this is as an infant, if a lot of this is based on memory associations, when you don't have memories to draw from is, and I know getting an infant's opinion is going to be really challenging, but uh, is there any evidence to show that, um, that children experience pain differently when it's something new to them and something foreign? I'd have no idea. Um, but it's an interesting topic to think about. I do know that if you look at kids when they fall over, um, maybe a little bit older than infants, but they fall over and then they what well, they they don't cry straight away. They look around to see what the reaction of the parents are like before they start crying. And because they're probably trying to figure out like, is this, um, is this danger or is this like totally fine? 
And you'll notice that a lot of parents these days, they'll laugh or like, you know, try and treat it like more of a positive experience rather than just being like, oh my God, oh my God, are you okay? Get around, pick them up, you know, cuddle them. And then they'll recognize that it actually might've been a threat and I might've been in danger and then start crying. Um, Just something that I've observed, but yeah, don't know too much about the research. Hmm. Yeah, uh, anecdotally, that's exactly what happens. Is that they there is <laughs> there is a brief pause before the before the tears well up, um, and it's interesting on how, you know, I've got a three year old and a five year old, and it's I'm I'm I, I usually just like I'll laugh at them when they fall because I'm I'm a jerk, but <laughs> also because I, I I you know a little bit mindful of not not trying to over dramatize these things um, unless they're they're seriously hurt. Like, have you hit your head? If the answer is no. Yeah, and there's no like there are no bones poking through your skin, you're probably okay. Um, that's my approach. <laughs> that's my terrible parenting dad. approach yep. to it. I am I'm amazing. Yeah. But um, but as a, I don't know, I, I, I it's it's obviously not causative. Well, it's it's hard to prove causality here, but uh, you know, my five year old now, he will most often like take a pretty big tumble. And I'm like, Whoa, you all right? He's like, Yep, I'm good. And he gets up and goes. And I'm like, Yeah, you know, and if he's if he's really hurt, he lets me know because that also happens. But when he just has like little stuff then he doesn't, he doesn't make a big deal out of it. And I, um, you know, I never, I never thought of it from a pain science perspective because I don't know the first thing about pain science, but um, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about that. That's that it's very much a learned response. Yeah. And when we like going back to Andrew's question or scenario, um, it, we're not just totally 100% drawing from past experiences. If we have a kid who's never, um, injured themselves before they're they're not too sure how to process the information but they still gather information in the moment rather than past experiences so that might be okay can i see a scrape on my skin um Mm -hmm. did that impact actually like cause did actually cause pain like if they scrape their leg or if they get a paper cut or something that will actually trigger some pain um but how we evaluate that pain the severity of pain the, the brain just won't have the information to draw on on past experiences, but we'll have enough information based on the current moment um, of how to distribute it as a threat. Mm -hmm. So there's actually something quite interesting that I've heard before, and I might be butchering this explanation, but but I know that in the past, uh, I've heard that if you touch something really, really hot, um, before you can actually feel the heat and feel the pain from the heat, your body reacts. Um, So there's a, some kind of neuromuscular control or something that maybe even bypasses the brain to, to pull your hand back. Um, and it's, I would assume dealt differently or the brain deals with it differently. Um, is that something you've come across in your reading or is that maybe more specific to hot and cold? Um, what we know about like the sensors on the skin is that they only respond to three different types of things. They only respond to pressure, which is just like firm as anyone can think of just pressing on the skin, heat or just like temperature. So it'll be able to have receptors that will respond to really cold, really hot and everything in between. Um, And what I can't remember the, like some sort of toxicity, like poison or um, whatever that word is. Uh, So anything in between them, like anything that's those three levels of sensation is what the nerves will conduct. And there'll be tremendous reaction depending on that. Um, So if you are subjecting your body to extreme heat, there will be very quick nerve responses that, that might um, create a reflex 
before you actually start to perceive what's actually going on. And so I guess in that scenario, it's just the nerves doing its job of getting you away from pain or getting you away from danger before you actually start processing it. It's just a really quick reaction. Then afterwards you'd be like, what just happened? Okay. And then the brain starts to factor in all these things that we were talking about. Hmm. And that would be the training for future avoidance, I guess, making sure that your brain has that negative association with pain. Yeah. And it's, it's a learned thing. I know, um, based on my experience in the past, I could probably talk about a couple of examples that I've experienced, but, um, one of them being when I was, a probably, um, about 14 or 15 years old, uh, if you can imagine your, um, kitchen basin or like your bathroom basin, I was, um, cleaning around the basin and there was something sharp sticking out of the, between the basin and the actual like sink. And I cut myself on it. And since then, it took a while, a couple of times for me to get over it. But years later, I went to do that same action and wipe my hand around the basin. And my brain, it wasn't pain, but there was something in my brain that just triggered to say, like, I'll say danger. But it was just some really funny, like, pins and needles sort of thing in my in my brain. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. When I was a kid, that, that actually happened to me um, where I got that, like, sharp cut on my finger. And I've now since um, deliberately done that action over and over and over again. And I don't get that same reaction because it's been successful, I guess you could call it. Um, but it, it makes total sense what I know about pain science now. That makes total sense, that same action, the same movement in the same environment. The brain's like, you were in danger last time you did this. Why are you doing this again? Um, and it takes some time to unlearn that. When you were telling that anecdote, I, f- I kind of, I got an uncomfortable feeling because I knew where the story was going. And I've like, <laughs> we've, I think we, as, as adult humans, we've all been to a place where we've run our hand over something where we did not expect to have our skin sliced and have our skin sliced. You know, my, the, the, the clear experience for me is I was, uh, I was looking for something in the, in like the couch cushions as a kid. And there was something, there was like a pin or, or a safety pin or something that was stuck in there. And I got that pretty deeply embedded in my skin. And it was like when you Brody, when you were telling your anecdote, I'm like, ah, I know what this feels like. And it's uncomfortable <laughs> for me to even listen to this. And it wasn't, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't feel the pain, but I felt that that, you know, almost like a sense of dread or, 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 you know, dramatic discomfort at the at, at hearing that story i wonder listeners if you're <laughs> if you were in the same boat well i know from my own experience uh working on older cars um when there's a rusted bolt or something and you're trying really hard to get the ratchet to turn <laughs> and all of a sudden it lets go and you smash your knuckles off of anything yes. close by um my knuckles start to tingle almost when i'm getting ready to put that pressure on because i know it's going to release i know it's going to do that but mm. uh, yeah exactly the same thing so that's I never thought of that before, but it's very interesting. For me, Andrew, it's getting um, it's getting uh, stubborn tires off. Yeah, right. It's when you get the tire lever on and you're you're just you're you're pushing it forward, trying to get the bead to unseat in the in the first little bit. And you know, if it slips, if the tire lever pops out, you're skinning your your knuckles on the spokes, <laughs> especially if they're aero spokes. Those things those things will take off skin. Cheese and, graters. Um, Cheese graters. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's amazing how many examples you can think of when you just, you know, when you stretch your mind a little bit and it's, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. In your episodes, when you were talking about this, you, you brought up something that I'd never heard of before that I want you to, to speak to Brody. And that is that um, when we have this negative association uh, in your examples with some kind of action, with some kind of mechanical motion, um, there, there can be a case where 
the the brain, and I'm going to try not to butcher it and I'll let you talk about it properly, but where the brain associates the the motor neuron action with the pain. And even if there is no kind of mechanical issue there with the limb or the joint or anything, it just the, the very motor action of performing this this motion is what generates the pain is that a, does that sound vaguely familiar yeah and it's a concept that people really struggle with particularly if you get an injury there's pain because let's just say there's um, something's been overworked or there's sensitive structures within that area and pain is distributed and it's sore it's very hard to explain to people that pain can still persist when those tissues have been completely healed and we either do scans or we um, do the right recovery, we do all the right things, yet pain still persists. It's very common and makes a whole lot of sense to think that that injury just hasn't resolved yet and that there's still damage or there's still an overload or there's still something going on that maybe scans haven't picked up yet. Um, However, we do know that let's just say in a case of low back pain, if in the past you have bent forward to pick up like um, 10 kilos, like some books or something, and then that triggers low back pain and you go back to doing it again when you're maybe just halfway through recovery, you bend forward again, it sets off again. The brain can be like, why the hell are you bending forward? Every time we bend <laughs> forward, the it's, it sparks pain. And some, if they don't have a, a health professional that's educating them in the right manner, the person might say, no, you need to lift properly. You need to lift with your back straight, lift with your legs. You shouldn't be bending forward at all. It's bad for your back. It compresses your discs and it can lead to more damage in the part, in the future. And so the brain takes on that information and says, oh, crap, um, maybe bending forward isn't good for me. So what better way for the brain to evolve and learn and get you away from danger than to be producing pain signals when you bend forward and associate that movement with pain so that if you ever do it in the future, I trigger pain so then you don't do it, then we're we're a safe, happy person. Hmm. However, that's just based on um, their experiences and based on what they've been told when in reality it is very safe for you to bend with, with your back. It's very safe for you to bend forward and structures can completely heal, but if that association with um, bending forward or that action is like drilled into the brain, that connection, it can still trigger pain, even though there is nothing going on. And I shared in my podcast as well, I had shoulder pain and, um, I was playing basketball at the time and took a couple of months for my shoulder to actually heal, but went back to playing basketball and returned to quickly and remember trying to rebound the ball or shoot and would spark this like sharp pain in my shoulder, which would aggravate for a couple of weeks months went by and i was completely better completely healed did all my rehab um didn't return back to basketball yet but totally pain-free and then my mate called me to say hey um we've had a couple of players cancel can you fill in in my basketball team tonight and i remember just driving not moving not doing anything but as soon as he asked me to fill in my shoulder started hurting and that was my it was only a very subtle pain that started but very recognizable and I thought, this is just my brain being like, Brody, you remember last time you played basketball? It it stuffed up. It flared up for weeks. We're not doing that again. I'm going to start sending some pain signals to your shoulder, um, however subtle it is, just to teach you a lesson. We're not going back to basketball. 
And mm. so that's like the association can happen. And we're probably going to delve more into chronic pain in a second, but it's it's very, very closely linked. So before getting into chronic pain, uh, I guess my follow-up question to that would be the phantom pain that people often experience with missing limbs. Uh, is it a similar mechanism that causes that? Yeah. And it, it goes to show that all pain comes from the brain because you can have a missing limb and still experience pain. Not only pain, but say itchiness or restlessness in a limb that's not there because the brain has this um, areas like if when the brain is created, it's um, there's different areas of the brain that correspond to different parts of the body. And if you lose a limb, that part of the brain is still there and those neural connections are still there. The nerves might not go all the way to your toes, but the, um, the part, the area of the brain that processes the foot is still there. And so that's why you can still get pain or itchiness or sensations in your foot hmm. when it's not actually there. Um, so another, it's just another example of how we know that all pain is generated from the brain and not from the tissues. Oh, that's fascinating. So, um, on the subject of chronic pain, uh, I have a couple of questions. Uh, the, the first, I think, makes the most sense. The first is, how do we decouple chronic pain from chronic damage to to a particular tissue? You know, you've talked on your show, and you've come. You were on our show to talk about this, and we've touched upon this very briefly with some other guests. Um, you know, chronic injuries are uh, sometimes an unfortunate fact of life in endurance sports, right? You, there, you, you covered some of the common ones when you were on last time. So how can you decouple whether or not an issue is a, a physical, you know, a chronic mechanical or structural injury versus chronic pain? And to make, to make it even as like a trickier question, um, I firmly sure. believe, and this is from a <laughs> from a from a, a, a therapist friend of mine, that one of the uh, one of the problems with uh, injuries one of the one of the reasons that injuries in endurance athletes take so long to recover is because we ignore them. So if we're here telling folks that you know this is this injury, this chronic injury that you're feeling, or this chronic pain rather that you're feeling, could just be a pain signal that doesn't have an underlying structural issue, then I could see this being a potentially a negative message in the sense of negative being that it, it hampers performance for these folks because then they potentially could ignore an injury that is a legitimate injury. So how do you, how do you walk that, that tightrope? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I'll try my best to answer it. If someone has an acute injury, um, we know we want to think in terms of structure in terms of what damage is locally around there. And we also need to know how much influence the brain has at interpreting, perceiving output. So think of it on a spectrum, like if acute, uh, or let's just say structure damage is on one side of the spectrum okay. and the brain influence is on the other side where the brain side, it's, it's all just, um, fabricated by the brain processing it and there's actually no um, there's no physical damage whereas on the other side there is a lot of physical damage um, but however the brain we still recognize the influence of the brain on that side um, but the influence of the brain is less relevant I guess you could say because if you have a, um, a broken foot we know that the the brain is still processing that we know that the amount of 
Um, the severity of the pain that you feel is the brain processing all the information like we discussed, but it is an acute injury. Mm-hmm. We do need to um, treat it like it is um, that it needs to heal. We do need the right management. However, we do know that the body undergoes certain healing times and most injuries will be healed in four to six weeks. Okay. We do know that there are some bones that take a lot longer if it has poorer blood supply. We do that, know that muscles take a lot sooner because they're quite rich in blood supply. But generally speaking, four to six weeks, most injuries are resolved or the tissue itself is um, less of a worry. But we do know that pain persists well beyond that. And we do know that um, how I like to think about it is the more that the longer you have had the pain for, the less relevant the structure becomes a factor and the brain starts to um, have more of an influence. So we're moving more towards that other side of the spectrum. Sure. And if someone is really struggling to overcome an injury, we do need to do a deep dive into their perception of pain. We do need to de- delve deep into their history, their emotional state, like their anxiety, depression, what they're uh, what they're attributing to their what meaning they're giving to their pain, um, what their past experiences have been like with this pain, and we need to start delving a bit more into that pain science realm for them to start improving and start improving that relationship with pain and settling this down because I have had a lot of runners come to me with five years of proximal hamstring tendinopathy or five years of plantar fasciitis and they want to get better. They, they, they can't walk for 10 minutes without pain. Hmm. And it's up to me as a therapist to try and work out, okay, how much is this, is the tissue, tissue, tissue sensitivity, tissue, like maybe a, a loading type of issue. How much of it is the actual brain? And sometimes I get them to document when they do have flare-ups, when they do have bad days, what the pattern is. And sometimes a lot of them will come up with this pattern of my pain is the worst when my anxiety is the worst or when I am hmm. um, when I have these depressive emotive states and if I'm constantly thinking about negative thoughts all day or despair of um, what I once was like or I can't play with my kids the way I used to, I can't run the way I used to, whenever I delve on those thoughts, that's when the pain that's when I have my flare ups. That's when the pains are worst. There's no change to the structure, but there is change to the brain and paying attention to that area and create, creating threats. And so the management for that, yes, we can start doing loading issues. We can start doing strengthening exercises and do all that, but it's not going to change your management. You're not going to get better unless we address the brain side of things and changing that relationship. Um, so I guess it is on a spectrum. It's not just one, you have chronic pain. We need to treat you this way or you're in the category of chronic pain, we need to treat you this way, but we do need to factor in both accounts and based on the individual and their experience and their history and how long they've had it for, we need to factor in how important and how relevant each bit of information is and come up with a management plan that way. If I can stretch out that explanation just a little bit, well, I, I, you know, I certainly agree with what you said. Um, I think what makes a lot of sense and one maybe useful takeaway for our listeners is that if this is an issue that's persisting for any any amount of time, you probably want to seek some help. I mean, uh, in terms of in terms of uh, a qualified sports therapist who can, you know, who can tell you that at least with some degree of certainty what the structural damage is with, you know, imaging or, or, you know, manual assessment techniques 
um, because then that that will color how you you can approach this problem, whether or not it's more of like, you know, cognitive therapy or if it's going to be more, you know, structural physical therapy, um, because this is very this is a very hard problem to solve on our own, I think, um, to, cause you know, we're always in our own heads right? and, and in our own bodies. And it's very, it's very difficult to be objective about these things because, you know, you feel pain in this place that you legitimately injured some time ago. And it's very hard to know. Um, and I, you know, I experience this fairly regularly. It's very hard to know if this is something to pay attention to or to ignore. So I always, refer to, you know, I always talk to my go-to therapist because I trust his opinion. And, uh, and it's funny how sometimes he'll, you know, I'll, I'll say, these are my symptoms. And it's Peter Kissel who was on our podcast. These are my, these are my symptoms, Peter. What do you think? And he's like, you know, and he's very honest with me. He's like, I think you're blowing things out of proportion. It's, it's, it doesn't sound like very much. And he only tells me this because we, we have a, a certain relationship. And so he knows me well. He doesn't usually tell this to people, I don't think. Sorry, Peter, if I'm uh, throwing you under the bus here. So he'll <laughs> tell me like, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, you reduce volume by this much and, uh, you know, maybe do this exercise and then see how you feel. And honestly, like nine times out of 10, it's, it's gone within within a couple of days. And it maybe was mostly in my head rather than a structural issue. Because as you say, structural issues don't take two days to heal. They take much, much longer. That example as well is the perfect, um, like the power of language. If someone says, look, it's okay. You just need to reduce your load. Um, There's nothing structurally threatening. Um, All you need to do is sensitive at the moment. All we need to do is just calm down that sensitivity and just have a slow build up back to where you used to. That's a lot safer and a lot more encouraging for someone than if, you know, other language is used with damage or grade two tear or um, (laughs) something that's quite threatening. But it is extremely tricky to know how much relevance we have to pay to the brain because you could get scans, uh, let's just say someone has proximal hamstring tendinopathy and they get scans and the scans show that there is some tendon degeneration and there is some scar tissue, um, How then people will be like, yes, this is my answer. This is why I've had pain for 10 years. But we have to think like maybe it's not that. Maybe it's not the scar tissue. Maybe it's not the, the um, tendon degeneration because we know that tendons can be degenerative and still be pain-free. We know that scar tissue doesn't cause pain, but some people are just looking for answers in the same way that if someone has plantar fasciitis and we say, okay, let's do a calf raise to see if it's all in the brain or see if it's just the actual sensitivity of the, the structure and they do a single leg calf raise and it triggers pain, that not might not necessarily mean that it's coming from the tissues. Like There still could be pain from that, what we talked about, the connection between that movement and being perceived as a threat so it's extremely tough it's extremely hard to say you know it is from the brain it is all in your head or we do need to pay attention to the structure and build it up it's it's very hard to catch someone or reason with them particularly if you tell them it's all in your head that doesn't go down very well no that's not that's not good bedside manner so this this is going to be my second question is um you know assuming that you're somewhere on that continuum that you painted between structural issue and, and cognitive issue, what, um, you know, let's say even if you're closer to on the cognitive side, because let's say it's a, it's a pain that's, that's lasted for months or years. Um, assuming they followed the therapy regimen, as you, as you say, they're, 
you know, ideally the structure would have healed or to a large extent healed. Um, what do you do? What's the, what's the intervention? What, what have you done in your practice that has, uh, that has uh, paid off? In severe cases, I refer them on. I refer them to a pain specialist mm-hmm. or sometimes like a psychologist or someone who can help. I'm not trained in if someone is extremely depressed, which is something I have found is a huge correlation. Those who have had depression, anxiety in the past and then get injured are more likely to develop chronic pain moving forward Interesting, um, because they are used to having negative thoughts spiral and the brain just manifest and sort of brood this negative thoughts and that can help well not help but it can foster um like a lot of chronic pain moving forward um so i can refer on there are tons of pain specialists that are excellent at their job of communicating what they do um i'm listening to a pain science audiobook at the moment and there's a, a pain specialist um, in the uk who is a part of a pain clinic and talking around their methods around if we do recognize that it is more chronic pain, we need to tell the patient themselves that it is okay to be in pain. It's it's all about managing their experiences and attributing um, reassurance to them, knowing the, uh, the relationship with the brain and pain, knowing that educating them around it isn't just damage, like pain doesn't equal damage, pain doesn't equal weakness. It's just the the rewiring and the um, the changes that the brain has made in relationship to certain movements and certain pain. And so education is a big step. And then just knowing that sometimes pain signals can be okay. And we don't want like a huge flare up, but we do appreciate that if you are at low levels of pain, then it's okay. And just processing that as a person will start to calm them down and we'll start to um, change their relationship with the pain and as a result will allow the pain to settle down and then once you start the pain settling down then that's this feed forward mechanism of being like oh maybe what we're doing is working and then continuously moving along that it's finding something meaningful it's making sure they um that if they are there wouldn't be for athletes but like a heavy smoker who has a poor diet who has poor sleep these sort of things really attribute to sensitivity of the nervous system and sensitivity of certain tissues. And so making sure that's all right, um, calming that down, encouraging healthier habits is a really good way to help with this intervention. Um, And just like doing something you enjoy, if it's painful to walk, but you love getting out in nature, you love breathing in the fresh air and going for a walk, then that's okay. It might be low levels of pain, but do something you enjoy. Engage. If you want to play lawn bowls with your your family or if you just want to get out and um, socialize, it's really important that you do that, even if it's with low levels of pain because this can help the brain change where your thoughts are, maybe a bit of a distraction as well, focusing on something positive for once and just slowly starting to reframe what you think your relationship with pain is, um, it's very tricky. It's very patient. It takes a long time. It requires expertise of something above me, but, um, yeah, can start to have really profound effects. Fascinating. Uh, Andrew, you had a question about DOMS, right? Yeah. So delayed onset muscle soreness, this is something that I've often wondered about and it's, well, from what I've read, which is fairly limited, um, there's not a great understanding of at least the evolutionary cause for this kind of soreness, like why we would actually be feeling it. Um, but it tends to peak at uh, 
somewhere between one and two days after, at least for me, after the exercise. And I'm just wondering, like, what is the purpose of that kind of pain? Um, and how does it come into play with your body and, and the associations your brain is making? So if you're hurting yourself during exercise, why isn't it painful during the exercise? Why does it become painful a day and a half afterwards? And you maybe can't even associate what activity you were doing to cause that. Yeah, good question. <laughs> You're throwing some some good curveballs at me. <laughs> I, I don't actually know. Like the what we got educated on around um, at uni was like we've all been told, you know, that when you do a heavy workout, it causes like these sort of micro tears or some sort of micro damage to the body. Mm-hmm. And the DOMS is, it either comes on 24 to 48 hours afterwards, agreed. But I think it depends on the individual, whether it is more of that 24 hours or more of that 48 hours um, for me, it's definitely, or sometimes it's just 12 hours, just as soon as I wake up the next morning, even if I've done that workout that night. Um, but yeah, it, it's like that little micro damage that the muscles will feel sore because it's just repairing. So maybe just like a pain, I'm just guessing, speculating, but I guess like those pain signals of like, we need time to rest because we know that you don't get better, you don't get stronger, you don't get fitter, faster when you exercise. We know that all that magic happens during the rest period, during the recovery phase, that switch off and rejuvenation phase. So maybe it's like some signals to be like, hey, we need to rest so that we can adapt and get stronger and um, start like, you know, becoming faster, helping us with our endeavors. Um, Maybe that's a reason because if you continuously work out, through a sore muscle or if you do bicep curls and then the next day you do bicep curls and then the day after that you do bicep curls, you're not going to adapt and get stronger. If anything, it's going to increase your likelihood of injury. So look, maybe it's a pain signal. Say maybe we just need a day or two off. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's always been fascinating for me um, just because it's not, not the direct kind of pain that we normally get. It's not caused by an injury per se. It's, well, like you said, micro tears, micro injuries, but it's not uh, not necessarily something bad. Yeah, I'm just as puzzled as you, mate. <laughs> fair, fair point. You know what? I really appreciate when people say they don't know because that's the, you know, that's the, the, the worst thing we can do, I think, is, is in the field that we're in um, of, well, pop science, I suppose, is, uh, is tell people something that's, that's, you know, completely off base or make claims that, that are unsubstantiated. So we've, uh, we've learned over time. And I think Andrew and I to say, well, we don't know, or we're just kind of, you know, this is what we think is happening, but we, we don't, we may not have a ton of, uh, a ton of evidence to back that, that assertion up. Um, but Brody, thank you so much for this. I, uh, I honestly am left with way more questions and answers after this. But I think that's, um, you know, that's, that's a key part of learning, which is something that I obviously really enjoy quite a bit. So just reframing, you know, having this chat and listening to your podcast on, uh, on pain, your, your lecture series on pain um, has really reframed the way that I think about pain and what it means, like what it means, uh, you know, to me as a coach, when one of, one of the folks that I work with says, I have this pain over here. It feels like this. What does this mean? And then my default so far would have been, oh, well, this means there's some kind of structural issue here, an injury that we need to address. Um, but now, you know, like I said, I wish you made it easier, but you made it harder because now it's a, it's a much less straight, straightforward signal. Um, I agree. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's a tough topic and it's a confusing topic, but 
I think understanding it, understanding its relationship in certain circumstances can be really profound. So if someone does have an injury that's lasted two weeks, you can go on thinking your traditional thoughts and you're you're still going to have tremendous success when it comes to healing and rehab. But there are certain scenarios that, you know, we've had all anecdotes all day um, around pain that just knowing, just having some level of understanding around pain science can be helpful throughout like certain situations. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think ignorance is ever in anyone's best interest, right? So, you know, <laughs> having having a, a poor model of, of the way something works is is never what you I think what you want. Um, so it's uh, it's it's always about you know now that now that my mind is a little bit more open to to what pain you know probably truly means. Now I have the opportunity and also the impetus to to kind of find more more out about it, um, and uh, and to to deepen my understanding. And I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I'm not going to dive down this rabbit hole because as a coach, I need to understand it to a certain extent before, as you do, refer it to somebody else. So you know, my my kind of chain of referrals for me, they go to somebody like you or you know wherever they happen to be, and then from you, maybe they go somewhere else depending on on what what happens. And that that that. Um, speaks to the importance of having that that care team for uh, for an athlete, and that having having all the pieces in place for that being super important. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's I agree with you. It's really important to understand this stuff. And if um, you wanted to include in the show notes as well, there's a YouTube video. Maybe the Laura Mosley. You can um, yeah, it's a good one. Add that into the show notes. But also, there's a YouTube video called Pain Explained in Four Minutes, and it's um, it's just a clever little drawing, perfectly explaining, mainly around chronic pain. But if someone wants to know more information, that's an excellent video that people should go check out. Yeah, yeah. Send the, send me those links, please, and I'll I'll put them in the show notes. Sure. Listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. Hopefully, you've uh, you've enjoyed this chat with with Brody and learned as much as I did. Um, we we always try to kind of keep things fairly. Uh, fairly interesting and, and fairly fresh for you. Um, in the past, we've <laughs> Andrew and I have gotten stuck on on aerodynamics and heat transfer. I think for a little bit too much, but once or twice, yeah. <laughs> so as always, uh, if you've enjoyed the show, give us a five star review. Write a write a review that's even uh, even more impactful for us and, and is really meaningful. And uh, we've been getting some questions coming in for um, for Dr. Amy Bender, who actually. Is now that Brody's on the show, we we, uh, we got a hold of her because uh, I've heard her on his podcast, um, and we had her on last week, and uh, she she did a great job. So we we've got some questions coming in for her. So if you have any questions about anything that you hear on the show about aero, thermal, pain right now, uh, sleep, anything else that you've heard us talk about, uh, send us a note, and we'll do our best to get you uh, an evidence based reasoned answer. So, uh, so with that, we'll say thank you one more time to Brody, and uh, we'll we'll call it a night. Thanks, guys, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you guys in a week's time. My kid went back to school today, which is amazing. But then I, I was so burnt out from the last two months, that I just spent the day on like, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you what Netflix, maybe. <laughs> Cheetos and beer on the couch. Cheetos and beer. That's, that's exactly right.